1: You're listening to the Rethreading Madness podcast, which airs live on Vancouver Co op Radio, CFRO 100.5 FM. We are recorded and produced on the unceded traditional territories of the Squamish, Musqueam, and Slayway Tooth Nations around Vancouver, BC. I'm your host, Bernadine Fox, and this is the show that dares to change how we think about mental health. Welcome to our show.
0: When I've never been found.
1: listening to Rethreading Madness. I'm Bernadine Fox. Today we are talking about abuse of clients by therapists and while we have examined this problem before on rethreading madness and we will be examining it again, it is an issue that is becoming increasingly recognized. The fallout for the client is profoundly damaging and therefore the need for readily available information is high. That said, the information in this programming may be triggering to folks who have experienced this trauma. And we ask that you do what you need to to take care of yourself while listening. There are resources on our website at rethreadingmadness.ca, but don't travel that road alone. Do reach out. I'm talking with Amy Nordhues, who is the author of Prayed Upon a story about abuse by one's therapist. Amy, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself?
2: Yes, I am a married mother of three. I am an author, a speaker, and now an advocate really for adult therapist and clergy abuse. So in your abuse, um,
1: which you talk about in this book, well, I might add, your abuser was not just your therapist. He was also your clergy.
2: Yes. He, do, he was do, you say all-
1: clergy or do you say minister or how, how would you, what's the proper term?
2: Well, he was actually a church elder. Oh, okay. So he was an elder at my church, but it wasn't just a church. It was a brand new church to me. I'd only been there for about a year and, you know, just fell in love with it, it kind of like, had fallen in love with um, my faith, you know, really for the Mm -hmm. very first time. So it was, it was really devastating in that regard. And he was also a psychiatrist. So he was kind of three different positions of power. Mm -hmm.
1: Yes, absolutely. And so when you say it was your very first time, was this the first time you went to church?
2: No, I, I, I grew up, I had a Catholic background and then my husband and I had been out of church for several, several years and I found celebrate recovery and did a lot of work on myself and gained a lot of healing through that. And that's kind of where my faith came alive for me for the first time in my life. Mm. And so I was sort of brand new in that regard and sort Mm -hmm. of naive in that regard. So when, you know, when I realized he was a church elder and a member of the prayer team, and, um, he used to always open up our sessions in prayer. I was, you know, fairly not even that regard, like excited that I was in these great hands. I didn't know the Bible as well. And, um, thought I had this, you know, great teacher, great, you know, person that I looked up to. Mm-hmm. And when you say he
1: opened your sessions with prayer, how did that make you feel? And I'll tell you why I'm asking, because it sort of reminded me, and I, I could be wrong, so tell me if I'm wrong. But it reminded me when my therapist, who also abused me, um, would tell me about her feminist principles. And I would think, well, how could she possibly be doing anything wrong? These She, she you know, is is bound by these feminist theory and these feminist principles of doing no harm and, you know blah 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 so I'm wondering did it do the same
2: thing for you or you mean get kind of uh put me at ease yeah or make you not look oh yeah I mean I thought wow this is the best of both worlds I've right. I've seen a psychiatrist before I've seen a therapist before but now I have a you know Bible scholar a Christian leader I have the spiritual piece, I have the medical piece, and I have the therapist piece. So I yes, I thought I was in very good hands. And I thought, naively, I thought it was a God thing. You know, we kind of do that sometimes. Oh, it's got to be a God thing. Well, it's not always a God thing. But I thought, what is a God
1: thing? Sorry, what is a God? thing? Oh,
2: meaning the way that my appointment came to be was kind of random. I didn't even make the appointment. I had a friend that was seeing him and realized I was down one day and said, Hey, I don't need my appointment and literally drove me there and told him, Amy's going to take my appointment. So it made me feel embarrassed. Mm -hmm. And it made me feel indebted that he just took me like that, you know, like a stray. And so in my mind, it's like, this just has to be a God thing that um I'm supposed to be here. Like this is where I'm going to get the healing that I've been searching for. Right. And so I was looking at it like that as he was a blessing.
1: Yes. Ordained by God. Kind yes. Kind of thing. Yes. Yeah. One of the things you mentioned um is that as you were writing your book, you you have these questions of, you know, were you a victim or a participant, you know, like, and I think that's one of the things that, that society struggles with around therapist abuse, because it has, you know, Me Too, you know, brought us to the idea that, uh, or recognition that, that perhaps um, people who marry their doctors or who end up with their bosses aren't necessarily this isn't necessarily a great thing and um that that some of those people felt pressured and coerced and and were abused and were were raped and assaulted by those very people um so the me too movement really sort of brought some of this into perspective and i often say that you know, therapist abuse, where you have a therapist who is sexually preying upon their own client in the workplace is has to be the ultimate me too, or imbalance of power that you can get to. Um, But I do know, just like you, that there is that struggle. Did I get victimized? Or was I participating in this? And I was wondering if you could talk to me a little
2: bit more about what that struggle was like for you? Yes that is huge and it's kind of the crux of our healing. Mm. For me, I forgave my abuser before I forgave myself because right. I needed to understand the answer to that question before I could forgive myself. And mm-hmm. it's kind of why I wrote my book to understand what just happened. Right. And I can remember I got away from the abuser in early July but in in May so a few months prior he just assaults me. Like I'm taken, I'm t- like out of the blue, didn't see it coming. He was praying with me right. at the time. And I just start sobbing and sobbing. And I remember, I mean, I just, I've just, I've never experienced a betrayal like that in my life. Like he was a father to me, like almost like a grandfather.
1: Right.
2: And in that moment, I knew it was wrong. I mean, there was no doubt. Right. And but then when i you know went home and i just so desperately wanted to tell my husband you know you you can't believe what just happened but then i thought i can't tell him because he's going to have questions that seem to come back to me like right. for example well now how were you sitting that close to him that that would happen right and you know these manip- these are master manipulators so yes. every step that they take um they work, they weave it in with, with our actions. So we kind of can't decide, did I have him sit close to me or did he sit close to me? Mm -hmm. For example, I was crying one time in a therapy session and he came over and got a tissue and sat on the ottoman in front of me and kind of like dabbed my tears with it. It was embarrassing and it was awkward, but Mm -hmm. then as I softened, I thought he's just trying to show me nurturing and, mm. you know, you're just not used to it. That's why it felt weird. Well, then, then I kind of liked that he was sitting closer, you know, cause I was emotional. I was upset and I liked his presence being closer. Well, he had had surgery, you know, a couple years prior and he was kind of acting like his back was getting sore mm. and I was in an oversized chair and I said, Hey, do you want to sit next to me? So, Did I ask him to come across the office? No, I never would have done that. But he weaseled his way over there. And then when I was assaulted, I thought, well, it's because you asked him to sit next to you. So they have a way of doing that where you can't figure out where the blame lies. It's just
1: maddening. It's It's maddening. It is maddening. And we also live in a society. I don't know. I don't know how old you are. I'm 63 now. And in my lifetime, anytime something bad happened, if you were assaulted, sexually assaulted, raped, touched inappropriately as a, as a female, it was always your fault. You were always made to be blamed for it. So Um, yeah, I'm pretty sure I'm not your, I don't know your age, but I'm pretty sure that still exists out there in society. My abuser had a a very novel way of doing it. She, she actually managed to get me to sort of agree to it in, in the way that she would, because she knew I was very rebellious. I am rebellious. And she would say things like, um, well people would say you're not capable of consenting because um you have mental health challenges which which she knew would just get me riled up that people would infer that for some reason you know because I'd been traumatized that now I can't you know determine who I consent to have sex with and so i would get angry at this comment that she would make and then in, in some sort of bizarre kind of twist, she would have me almost consenting to my own sexual assault by her. So she was acknowledging that she shouldn't have been doing what she was doing, and then getting my rebellious nature to buck up and, and get mad about this idea, which now I look at and I think, my God, that is so diabolical. Oh, like, it, it is would... so
2: diabolical it and <laughs> so pre-planned. And that's pre-planned. what it's maddening. Because it is so premeditated. In fact, it's premeditated over a period of sometimes months or years. Years, years. Mine was eight years. Yeah, and
1: yeah, oh, yeah. Um, you also talk about that realization after you've been writing for a while of of the grooming that went into your experience, and and I really resonated with that because. I went through the checklist from Tel thinking, okay, I'm just going to do this checklist and it's going to show me that, um, that what we had was special and it was, you know, unique and it doesn't fit in this criteria of abuse. And I did this checklist <laughs> and I, I kept marking it off, marking it off and I got to the end and realized I had
2: marked off practically everything. And it's, yeah, it's so funny because we all say, we all thought it was special and unique and yeah, well, that's you know, what they tell us. That's... Even when you're hurting afterwards, a part of you still hopes yes. it was special and unique because yeah. you can't fathom that level of evil that yeah. you think there's got to be some humanness in there, but there really isn't. No. And, and of
1: course, I believed her Her definition of herself as this kind, generous, all giving, you know, overly warm and helpful individual. Who was a feminist and guided by those principles? So, what happened for you? You did you do the checklist that I mentioned, or how? How? What? What did you do? That had you realizing that that wasn't being special; it was being groomed. And and while we're using the term "special," I just want to point out: child molesters also tell their victims they're special, and they don't ever do this with anybody else. So, so yes. how, how was that like for you when you kind of realized? Well, grooming.
2: of course, I knew immediately I didn't want anything that happened. I knew that part. I just was angry with myself that I hadn't left yet, you know, that I had participated as much as I had. But the special piece, even after I knew he was hurting me and I went to my pastor and then I went to the medical board, I still had a slight attachment to him emotionally, to, oh, to yeah. the fantasy that he had created, not to him.
1: Right.
2: And what really helped me, it really, it took time. It took it to, to really just kind of grieve that loss. Cause mm-hmm. you know, it was an attachment that never existed, but was right. very strong. But what really helped me was when another victim came forward mm-hmm. and literally I can remember us sharing notes. And I mean, it was not funny, but it was almost pitiful and funny, the lines are all the same, the everything right. is the same, the playbook is the same. Right. And I just I felt hurt. Like, I know he's an evil sociopath, but it hurts that yeah. he that I really was used because it took my brain a long time to grasp that people can use people and throw them away like garbage.
1: I know. It is so it's baffling very, to me. <laughs> very painful. And especially when, you know, you you initially had, you know, this good sense of him. It, it, it destroys your sense of <clears throat> trust in your own perception of what's going on around you. I'm talking to Amy Nordhues about her book, Prayed Upon, and her experience of abuse at the hands of a therapist slash elder in the church. Um, Amy, thank you again for coming and chatting with me about what is a really hard topic. I I know you like me, we've, we've kind of gone through it, but I, I do want to warn our listeners that, um, this may be a triggering topic for some of you who may not have, um, processed, uh, your own experience. Um, you talk about shame and, um, I think that's probably one, a big sort of, Hurdle to get over because we've been so convinced that um, we are responsible. You know, I know. I know survivors tell us that. You know, they're told that these people don't do this with anybody else, even though we find out that it's usually not true. Um, that they're very special, that they kind of lost themselves in them, you know, in the work with them, you know, they're made to be held responsible for the abuse by their therapist. Again, much like what a molester does to a child. Um, How long did it take you to get away?
2: Um, It was kind of a slow breakdown there at the end, that assault in May, and then it was only, I was only there two more months. Um, but it was just pressure was mounting on, I know he's hurting me, but if I could just get him to quit, then I can stay, but yet he's not quitting. So I really Wait. should leave, but yet I'm attached. right? So it kind of was a downhill like that. And what, what got me out was besides that and all the, I mean, I was just a wreck. I was, my anxiety was through the roof and mm. I was, I wasn't sure if he was helping me or hurting me. I, right. I didn't know And I needed to see the actual level of evil because I'm such an empathetic person and I'm always giving people the benefit of the doubt that I just, like you were saying earlier, well, he just got tripped up with me. There's something about me when he really gets it that he's hurting me, he's going to stop. Right. I needed to know that was absolutely not the truth. And I, this is really hard to say, and it's kind of pitiful to say, but. I actually asked him if we could just have clothes on and just talk. Would he talk to me? I'm crying. I've been begging for the last three sessions. Can we, can you just talk to me? Like this is my therapy session and my therapist and the, and he responded in the most icy cold way I have never seen. He was very angry and I just saw complete like, there is zero regard for me. He does not care at all. And all that I knew in that moment, that's what I needed to see. It hurt, but I was like, okay. And I left and I say in my book, I left that day, but I I didn't look back now. Mm -hmm. Was I still attached? Yes. Yes. Um, But it gave me, it gave me the strength to not go back. But even then it was over a weekend and I'm just crying out to God because I think he's a, I thought God sent this person as a blessing. And now I'm like, okay, is this who's talking to me? Like God, mm-hmm. is this a good thing or a bad thing? I didn't even know. Right. Um, and well, how I was could you sitting... know?
1: How could you know? We well, we go to therapists, and nobody hands us a you know these are the ethical boundaries in therapy, and if they get transgressed, you know something bad is about to happen. Nobody says that to us. They say but, literally what they say is they being the people out there who care about us, they say, you need to go to therapy and you need to trust your therapist. You need to talk yes. to them. And in fact, therapy doesn't really work unless you trust your therapist. Now, an abusive, unethical therapist takes that trust and they twist it around. <clears throat> but that what that does is you're still trusting. You're still believing what they are saying is when they say, this is what you need to do to heal, um, we believe that and we push ourselves outside our comfort zones and we do things that we don't necessarily think are the right things, but we do it because we want to heal. And that sounds right. like exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, Jesus. you
2: cannot be open and guarded at the same time. So you no. have to make a decision at some point in therapy, I'm going to trust and let my guard down. But on top of that, when we've been abused as children, right. we already have the message ingrained in our head that. We are not as valuable as regular people. Therefore, our opinions do not hold as much weight. So the fact that my pastor trusted him implicitly told me that I must be wrong in my, in my warning signs, in my, Mm -hmm. in the red flags, that, that, that couldn't be correct because people that are above me in value say otherwise. So even when I did get that off feeling, I would throw away my own opinion. And for somebody else's, but I was able, so over that weekend, I was, I started fighting the guilt. Well, how can I turn on him? He was helping me until he was abusing me. Mm -hmm. Um, How can I, he seemed like such a broken, fragile soul, which was part of the grooming. And I literally heard God's voice say, Amy, he is not your problem. And like to fix. He's not your problem to fix. And I was like, okay. So I I drove to my pastor's house and I was able to tell them everything in that session. And then I, the healing went on in stages from there. Wow. Good for you. So I really want to
1: impress upon people that, um, even the Canadian medical association, I'm probably getting, I'm probably bastardizing that. Um, uh, there is a clause in there, and and a and a statement from them in that any psychiatrist or doctor who has sexual relationships with one of their clients is in that that is abuse. That that is an abuse of authority. That it never can happen. There's none of this. Well, you know, if the relationship is you know you know on, you know only had to do with this, and if there's this two year waiting period. You know, then you can, you know, blah blah blah. Not with psychiatrists and doctors in Canada. It is a never situation. You can never, not with a formal former, not with a former, not with a current client, can you have any kind of sexual contact? Um, And what they say in that is that it is akin to incest. That the relationship between therapist and client is like parent and child. And that makes sense when you talk about your trust being sort of this complete trust and that you're giving yourself over, that this person has an enormous amount of power. I'm, I'm not sure. Where is it you live again? Is it Oklahoma? Did yes. I don't know what the law is in Oklahoma. There um, isn't any. There is no law. No. So, um, so he is not breaking any law by Criminally, Jonas.
2: he is not. Huh. I would have to prove when I was speaking with the medical board, one of the investigators told me I might have a strong enough case to pursue a criminal rape charge. However, two very wise attorneys in this field of therapist abuse mm-hmm. told me literally it will destroy you and your family and he will likely walk. Don't right. do it. Right. So yeah. And there's no witnesses. Right. And it's my word against his and you know, it's just, I, and I was, when you were saying that about, the law in Canada and that's so amazing they have that and people don't get that as I was saying recently there's a power imbalance if you cannot separate the person from the position and yeah. th- and you can't wait three years they're still your therapist they're still your doctor it, yeah. it doesn't go away and they're yeah. still your pastor
0: okay round two name something that's not boring a laundry oh a book club computer solitaire huh Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over a hundred casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. Yeah. Uh,
1: as much as I say that, we're still trying to figure out how to really, truly um, deal with this situation. I feel like in the time since I have come forward, there have been some gains, um, not enough, and it is in the criminal code. um, But uh, as I've been told to actually get a therapist criminally charged and convicted, you almost have to be in a coma that 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 is the mental incapacity that you have to have before the police will kick in and or the crown will kick in and recognize that uh, you were incapable of consenting now that said <clears throat> i did apply to victim services after 10 years <clears throat> and though they initially tried to tell me it was a romantic relationship i appealed on the grounds of the criminal code and on the grounds of the clauses in um, the different uh, organizations that regulate psychiatrists and psychologists, and um, they did acknowledge that uh, you know that that this was an abusive situation, that it was not a romantic one. So that's good. It is well. It's a step. It's at least a step. Um, devastating. The the when you when you recognize that. This person that you've idolized, that you've handed your life and your secrets and your fears and your vulnerabilities over to uh, take care for you and help you through, when you recognize that they are, um, I think the word you used was evil, and I think
2: that you're right in that. Um, What does that feel like? How did you feel? Oh, my gosh. Uh, like there's nothing that I've experienced in this lifetime that comes close to that level of pain that I felt. And I have been molested many times um, in my lifetime, but I have never had someone pour into me and trick me over a year and a half only to then use me like trash. Oh, yeah. I've never experienced that, that grooming and then the abuse that is Yeah, I don't really have words for that. Yeah, I mean, sexual assault is devastating in any form or fashion, but I have been sexually assaulted even by a physician in the past. Um, But forming a relationship first is just a different level of evil, I think.
1: Yeah. And we let them in. Right, that's our job. Let them in past yes. all your walls, past all your defenses, past all the things that you've used over your lifetime. Having been abused as a child, having gone through, you know, adult situations that were traumatizing. You know, we we go through those things with our walls up. A therapist takes all those walls down, and then they hurt you. It is devastating to a core that I don't. I think most people don't understand. Um, let me also relate it to past romantic relationships not that this one was but people think that when you broke up with people before were you that devastated no 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 it doesn't even come close doesn't come close and i agree it doesn't come close it was like uh it's like the ground literally is gone for me and what's
2: another level of evil to it is the way that they make us feel that we participated yeah so not only do we have the betrayal but we have the self-hatred and confusion right Um, it it didn't feel survivable to me, to be quite honest at first, right? It it didn't. No.
1: I mean, there's also, I don't know about your abuser, but there are many abusers who once they get it, that their victim is leaving and they no longer have control over them and that they might get told on, um, they become very malicious and, um, nasty and use their counseling degree or certificate to then re-diagnose this person who's now gone to say, oh, they're borderline, or they're this, or they're that, or in some way give them a diagnosis that would um, lessen their credibility if they do disclose. I know that happened to me. Um, Did he try any of that? What happened when when he got found? What did he do?
2: Um, Well, I... I live in a small town and one of my other physicians was like a close friend of his. And it was Mm. very awkward to go to him. And so I, I met with him in person and I said, I want to know what he said about me. Mm -hmm. And, and I also said the same thing to my pastor. And he said that he was telling his buddies that I was delusional and that I had imagined the whole thing. And then later when I did file a civil malpractice lawsuit, they had the, 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 his side, um, his medical insurance had me be interrogated by a psychologist to determine, like you said, my credibility and my right. mental stability. Right. In the interview, I swear lasted 10 or 15 minutes. It was very simple. It didn't even feel like an interview. My attorney was there. There, you know, So it wasn't just me. I thought, wow, is that it? And afterwards I asked my attorney if I could read the letter and he wouldn't let me. And so I know it was very damaging. And he said, just remember they hired him for the defense so whatever he writes is going to be for the defense
1: right and
2: i it infuriated me but i thought i had to let that go yeah they paid him he talked to me for 10 minutes and then he wrote a bunch of damaging stuff that would take away my credibility so they could win in a lawsuit right, right. it's just the, the level of unfairness is just, just keeps going you know
1: yeah and it it goes back to Freud. Um it was one of the things that I got recently that you know really sort of became sort of crystal clear in my head is you know Freud once upon a time knew that children were being assaulted as children by grown men, sometimes their fathers. And he spoke out about that and got lambasted by his colleagues. And so he changed it. And instead, he told people that, okay, they weren't really assaulted. They just wanted to be assaulted. And then then what he did, of course, because he's a psychologist, he then set up therapists, counselors, psychologists, psychiatrists, whatever, people in that genre to be the people that determined what was true. Because he's saying sexual assault survivors are unable to discern reality between truth and fantasy. Did it happen or did they want it to happen? And then he put therapists in there to define what happened for that client. And so what happens when we come forward and say, this person abused me, that person has already been deemed our voice. They've been already been given the the power to determine what is true for us. And that's what we're fighting against so often. In these situations, I'm having an incredible conversation with Amy Nordhughes about abuse by therapists and her book, Preyed Upon. So, Amy, at the break, we were talking about um, one of the things that had happened to you. And I wanted you to um, repeat it for our listeners. You, you talked about having been assaulted and crying and, and what he said and how he said it. Can you yeah. can you do that again for us?
2: Yes. After this assault that where I'm just sobbing and saying, I, I can't survive this. I can't survive this. It was either right at that session or the next time I came in where I'm just crying to him about it. And he laughed and said, I'm supposed to be protecting you from people like me. And I can remember it was like time stopped and I just looked at him and my brain was like it didn't have any category for that comment. It was the most shocking thing I'd ever heard. And I have since processed that because I am not a sociopath, I do not interpret as they do. I just filed that away in the, I don't even know what to do with that category and just like, let it go. I mean, it was so horrific. Mm -hmm. That I didn't know what to do with it. Mm -hmm. So I just, I just sort of shoved it to the back.
1: And that goes to why sometimes people stay for a long time is because they are in such a cognitive dissonance between how they're feeling and what's happening and what they're being told to believe this is about and, and things like you discussed. You also, um, talked about how, um, what he said would happen if you ever tried to disclose that he was friends with certain
2: people. Can you, he had told, sorry, that's okay. He had told another victim who had been with him much longer that once you start therapy, you can try to tell what he's doing, but nobody's going to believe you. And besides he was best friends with the DA. So go ahead and try to tell. Mm -hmm. And, And he did make sure he was friends with the DA. And so you know, it was almost like a good old boys club. You didn't really know if you had anybody you could go to.
1: Yeah. No, it's sometimes very difficult. Um, How did this impact on your sense of God and your, your, your ability to go to church and participate there? You talked about it being this wonderful experience for you.
2: What happened with that? Well, we can say that the naive glasses are gone, but, um, or the rosy colored glasses are gone, but I, I, it did not damage my relationship with God. I did not see God as, you know, someone who caused it or abandoned me during it. Mm -hmm. Um, I, my relationship with church has been shattered. My trust ability to trust pastors or anyone that holds a religious position has been obliterated. And I just don't know if I will ever go back now. I, it's not that I'm bitter. I see good things about going to church. I just don't know emotionally if I ever will, if that makes sense.
1: No, it makes absolute sense. Yeah. Um, your your sense of trust, um, which is true for all of us who go through this, in, is is damaged beyond anything that we would have ever thought before. So not just trust in other people, but your trust in yourself can sometimes be absolutely devastated.
2: Yeah. And, you know, and I give my pastor props for this. He did the right thing when I told him he believed me and he had this abuser step down as church elder, but then he went into protect the church mode and it was very painful. And then he was lumping the abuser and I together. And we just want to get you the help you need, you know, like we're both these broken sinners. And it was so painful that I eventually told him, if you can't talk to me about this as if you are speaking to your own daughter, then don't talk to me about it at all. Mm -hmm. Because I said, you are one of the few father figures in my life, and I do not deserve to be lumped together like and talked to that way. And he said, okay. And he never talked to me about it. But, and then eventually I couldn't go back to the church. I mean, I tried at first and I couldn't. And I reached out to him, I don't know how far, maybe a year after. And he said, Um, You need to talk to the pastor at your new church. And I thought, what new church? And it made me, I felt so hurt because I thought, really, that that doesn't deserve 15 minutes. I mean, he's the only one that knew everything that I didn't have to recap this for some stranger. And, and I'm not, I get it. I do. I'm an adult. I get he's busy, but. And, and, and they can't, I get it that pastors are overloaded and overworked, but I just don't, I feel like I can't handle any more disappointment. And so I just don't even want to go there with church
1: I would think that um and i'm I say this not having gone to church in my really in my life um But I would think that as somebody who is responsible for an organization, which the church is, finding out that somebody within your church, an elder in your church, so somebody with power, has done this to people they are in charge of, I would want to make sure this isn't happening in other places with other people. Like, How is it that this guy is operating and feeling okay about operating in my organization doing this? Um, So I'm a little concerned, it sort of sounds like what schools did when they would take um, an an abusive uh, teacher who was molesting the children and just move them to another district as if somehow moving them away would get them away from the thing that um, was uh, coercing them into behaving badly. And the same with Catholic priests and other ministers that they just get moved so that there's some sense that, like you said, like both the minister, the clergy, the elder, and the victim are somehow mutually responsible. And that is just not the case. This is, in fact, a horrific abuse of power. And uh, it definitely isn't the fault of the victim at all. You mentioned um, thinking that once upon a time, you were going to take your secrets to your grave. Um, How come? How come I didn't? How come you wanted to take them to your grave?
2: Because that's a big
1: statement. It's we don't choose those things lightly.
2: Um, and, it, you know, I have instant tears in my eyes because the level of shame and self-hatred mm. was so huge that I didn't see any way to explain it to another human being that they would understand and wouldn't judge me. Mm. And I thought, you know, even people that are trying to love me and care about me will in mm. the back of their mind really not get it and kind of judge me, but try to not judge me. So I saw nowhere to go. I saw how am I supposed to explain it to someone else when I hardly understood it. Right. And, you know, luckily I found other victims through tell that I could get some support from and that helped that level of shame. But yes, my original plan was no one's going to know not anybody in the plan. That's
1: what I, that's what I did. Even even while it was happening, I, he- I said, I'm, we're never talking about this to anybody ever. Like, this is not going to happen. It's- and it was because I knew being a part of the mental health community here and having overheard Therapists saying things like, oh, no, you know, you got to watch those sexual abuse survivors because they're so manipulative. They will seduce you into bed. And, you know, so you just have to be really careful. Like there was no sense of responsibility oh my gosh. for the therapist at all. It was all the victim was responsible. And um, yeah, it was bad. And it's that's still bad. Not- I believe
2: it's still bad here. I really I do. agree. That is another reason why we stay so long. Because there's no one we can tell. Yeah. Because it takes us months, years to accept that we weren't to blame and to understand what was done to us. Right. So we're trapped in a situation that we know we need to get out of, but there isn't anyone to turn to for help.
1: Especially if you have become... Very dependent on your therapist, and like with abuse batterers or child molesters, there's a sense of dependency that they create and foster and entrench. And I know in my case, I didn't no longer really had friends. I didn't have any family. I, I really had no one outside of her um, to talk with about this. And so I was very isolated. And I, and I hear that over and over and over by other survivors is that they've become isolated. It certainly is true with batterers as well. They isolate their victims.
2: Yes. That's something they have to accomplish before they make their first major assault. Yes. There's all these check, checklists they have to check off. And that is one of them. And I was definitely in that category. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, I'm so sorry this happened to you, Amy, but I'm very glad you're
2: in this place and
1: able to have this conversation with me yes. because it's an important conversation to have. I think it's really time for people in society to start understanding that anytime a therapist transgressed boundaries, especially sexual boundaries in a, with a client, it is always their fault. It is always their job to hold those lines. And it is never the victim's fault. It doesn't matter what mental health diagnoses they come with. It doesn't matter if they took off all their clothes and flung themselves at them. It is still the therapist's job to hold that line. That's
2: right.
1: Yeah. Well, thank you, Amy. I appreciate you. this conversation. And, and just so people know, to Amy mentioned tell um, that is the therapist exploitation link line. I volunteer there. Um, we support victims globally who have gone through abuse by their therapists, you can reach them at www.therapyabusealloneword.org. And Amy, your book, Prayed Upon, is out. Yes. Um, can you tell folks where they can find that book?
2: Yes, they can find it at my website, which is name, um, on Amazon. And the paperback is available wherever books are sold. That's cool. And Nordhaus is spelled N O R D
1: as in David, H as in Harry, U E as in Edward S. So, Amy Nordhaus, all one word.com. Did I get that right? Yes, Amy Nordhughes.com. Okay. All right. Well, that's great. Thank you so much, Amy, for coming and sharing your story with us. And that's our show. My thanks to Amy Nordhughes for this wonderful chat today, albeit on a difficult topic. As a follow-up to this program, Rethreading Madness will be speaking again with Amy Avalon and Carolyn Clement about the impact of this trauma on the client. But most importantly, our thanks goes out to you for joining us today. Stay safe out there. I'm Bernadine Fox, and you've just listened to Rethreading Madness, the podcast that dares to change how we think about mental health. We air live on Vancouver Co-op Radio, CFRO, 100.5 FM, every Tuesday at 5 p.m. or online at co-opradio.org. If you have questions or feedback about this program or want to share your story or have something to say to us, we want to hear from you. You can reach us by email, rethreadingmadness at co-op radio. If you enjoyed this show, subscribe so you don't miss the next episode.
0: day.